This is Annie Stevens Gleason, Minister for Worship and Incorporation at the Episcopal Church of the Redeemer in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I'd like to welcome you to our worship podcast. This is the Holy Eucharist Rite 2 for March 3rd, 2024.
Good morning. Welcome. Uh, welcome to Church of the Redeemer. It is a joy. It is an honor and a privilege to have the opportunity to worship with you today. We're so grateful that you could be with us. I want to say a special welcome to those of you who are joining us for the first time or for the first time in a long time. And it's great to have you. And I want to say a special welcome also those, to those who are joining us on our live stream. Thank you for making time to be with us in this way. We're so grateful that we can worship with you. You are so welcome here. Um, if you'd like to get to know the church better, you can always go on our website, redeemer-cincy.org. That's redeemer-cincy with a y.org. You can click on the Connect tab there and connect with us so we can welcome you into this beloved community. Um, I have a few announcements I'd like to make this morning, and then we're getting started on an exciting day at Church of the Redeemer. Um, first, I want to let you know that immediately following this service, we will continue with our Sunday Lenten programming, Nourished by Love, the Holy Eucharist. That, uh, that series is occurring in the parlor during the 10 o'clock hour, and uh, today we explore the Eucharist through resistance and renewal. That will be, as I said, right immediately following this. If you have missed the last couple of weeks of the Lenten series, that's totally okay. There are no quizzes or tests, and you can join them. Uh, so to join us in the parlor right immediately following this, or join us in the Great Hall for some coffee and some treats and just to socialize. We've got options, and we have education opportunities for people of all ages during that 10 o'clock hour. This Monday, tomorrow, uh, we begin a book study of the book The Gift of Empathy, and that starts at 6.30 p.m. in the parlor. The group will meet monthly through May. More information is available on our events page, and books are available at the reception desk on the office level. Then this coming Tuesday, March 5th, uh, is our second follow-up communal dinner and conversation uh, for A Case for Love, the movie that we watched a, few a couple months ago. Um, We've had, and then had follow-up conversations. There's been some specific practices put in place for that group of practicing unselfish love. Um, and, then, and then they're going to be talking about that. Uh, that's, that's Tuesday at St. Andrew's Episcopal Church at 6 o'clock. Tuesday at St. Andrew's Episcopal Church, who we're partnering with in this ministry at 6 o'clock. We also have another Lenten series uh, on Wednesday. Uh, Wednesday evening throughout uh, Lent, uh, we continue in the series In the Hope of the Resurrection, how to prepare faithfully for end of life. This program begins at 6.30 p.m. with a meal in the parlor. Even if you missed the last couple of weeks, again, you are welcome to join us for that this week. Just come on in. Um, be sure to check out all our Lent to Holy Week programming on our website under the Connect tab as well as on our app. And at this time, I would like to invite all of our elementary school, preschool to elementary school age children to join us in the chapel. Who's back there? Well, we've got Tim and Tommy back there. Perfect. Join them in the chapel for Donuts and Jesus, an age-appropriate interactive worship for children. Um, donuts and Jesus, both of them in the chapel right now. Go and join us, uh, uh, come back to us as we return uh, to take communion together. Okay, friends. All right, it's 9.01. Perfect. We're beginning our service like this. This is a, an unusual service that we're going to do today. You may have heard about it or may heard the announcements of it. You'll also notice we have ginormous bulletins. Some of you remember we used to have them like this every Sunday just this week because you want to have an opportunity to look at everything and you want to have an opportunity to write things down if you'd like. Today we're going to be doing what's called an instructed Eucharist. And that means this service that we're in, it's called a Eucharistic service. We're going to pause periodically and I'm going to walk you through what we're actually doing and why we're doing it. So you'll get a bit of a sense of what we're doing and what's happening. And then, but we're still worshiping. It's not all a class. And again, no tests, no quizzes, okay? Um, but it's an opportunity for you to explore more fully the liturgy that we undertake. So we'll be pausing periodically throughout the worship service uh, to uh, talk about that. My, my, my homily will be about two minutes long, 
after which there will be space for question and answer, not just about anything that I preached or didn't preach on, but about anything you want to know about in the worship of the church. If you have any questions about what the heck we're doing, um, then you can ask it. There's a possibility I won't know the answer off the top of my head, and that my colleagues won't either. If that happens, we will find out the answer and we will print them in an upcoming bulletin. Okay, so we'll get that information to you. But I'm going to say a couple of words right now as we begin this service. We call this service Holy Eucharist. The Eucharist comes from the Greek word for thanksgiving. So the entire service that we are in right now is formed around the idea of thanksgiving. That this is an act of giving thanks to God. The work in worship that we do in this space is a thanksgiving act. And the whole service, this whole thing that we do, the climax of the service is not um, some awesome sermon or a fantastic choral piece, although we love when those things happen, but the climax of the service actually is when we all take communion together. The shared meal where we participate in being nourished by Christ himself, and the focus of that service is on our thanks to God. Now the service today is broken up, as it is every Sunday, is broken up into two parts. And you'll see in your bulletin at the top here, it'll say the liturgy of the word. And then later on, you'll see the Holy Communion. Those are the two parts, the Liturgy of the Word and the Holy Communion, sometimes called the Liturgy of the Word and the Liturgy of the Table. Liturgy is a fancy word for our worship service uh, order, the order of service, okay? So the Liturgy of the Word focuses on the gospel being proclaimed, and then the Holy Communion Liturgy focuses on the gospel being embodied. Now, right now, friends, you might notice that we have different fancy colors that we wear at different times, and sometimes the cross is a different color. You've seen that, right? We actually have different seasons. Many of you already know this, but we have different seasons that we observe in the life of this church where we focus on different aspects of what it means to be a part of God's family. Lent is the season that leads up to Easter, and Lent is about penitence and hum humility. It is about fasting and self-reflection. It is a time where we focus on God's sacrifice in Jesus Christ. Um, and so we want to know about that. So what happens, you'll see a couple of things that are different. Throughout Lent, we begin the service with the confession. We call it the penitential order. And after we all march in with the song, um, we will do the confession and absolution at the beginning. This sets the whole tone for the, for the worship service. This is a worship service in a time that's meant to be about penitence. All our readings will be about that, and I'll talk about the readings later. You'll also notice that all of the musical selections in the church, all of the musical selections throughout this time have been chosen carefully. Uh, they are always chosen carefully, because that's how Brett rolls, but they are chosen carefully and sp specifically. They are meant to mirror the mood, the, the spirit, and the theology of the season we're in, Lent. They're also meant to be connected in some ways to the readings and the teachings of the day. So a lot of work goes into how the music is picked throughout the year, and you'll see that today. So what's going to happen is we're all going to uh, stand up in a few minutes, and we're going to sing an opening hymn, and we're all going to march in. Now, uh, processions in churches like we're doing where we wear the robes and we all march in started in the church somewhere around the third or fourth century essentially around the time that christianity became legal in rome and the services began to mimic more the 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 public rituals of rome and so we saw things like processionals with robes and there's a question about did we add choirs to make the processions longer or did the processions get longer because we needed a choir um it's it's a chicken and egg thing i'm not sure which but here we all are with our choir and our procession, and we'll do that in just a moment. So you're going to see that. Once we march in, we will say our confession, and then we will uh, have, an, we'll have a, what we call the Kyrie. There's some kind of song of praise. In this case, throughout Lent, we're singing, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy, Lord, have mercy. 
and then we'll have an opening prayer. And I'm going to tell you, this is the, if you remember this, you're like, you're in on the church nerd thing, guys. You'll notice that the opening prayer is called the collect of the day. If you look at it, it looks like it says collect, but that's rookie stuff. I'm teaching you the, the, the insider stuff. It's actually, in the church, we call them collects. How is it different from a collect? It's not. They mean the exact same thing. But churchy people have to make everything different, so we say collect. Okay? So the collect of the day is the prayer that's, that holds all of the themes of the day together. So these are the things that are about to happen. I'll stop us in a little bit after we've gotten through that and talk you through a little bit more of the service. Um, but I invite you at this time to stand. And historically what would be done, we don't always do it in this church, is face the back, face the cross, and then you, as the cross comes forward, you walk, you, you let your direction go with the cross. So everybody please stand and face back towards the cross and as the cross comes in you'll follow the cross with your eyes and then you'll all be facing forward again. Let's begin our worship.
Bless the Lord who forgives all our sins. God's mercy endures forever. Jesus said, the first commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is the only Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Let us confess our sins against God and our neighbor. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you. Almighty God, have mercy upon you, forgive you all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen you in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, that we may be defended from all adversities which may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts which may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Okay. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about the readings while Nico comes up. Just a little brief thing. You'll notice that every week we have a specific structure of our readings. We have a first lesson, which comes from the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures. It is followed by a response, which is almost always a psalm. Sometimes it's another liturgical song from our scriptures, but it's usually a psalm, and we'll have that. And then we'll have an epistle reading, which is one of the New Testament readings that's not from the gospel, and then we'll finish up with a gospel reading. This is all very intentional. All of the readings are pointing towards that gospel reading. They all have con uh, consistent themes with some themes that you'll find in the gospel reading. 
And the goal is for all of the readings that we hear, uh, both uh, from the Hebrew scriptures and from our New Testament, it, you'll hear pointing towards the theme that's being brought up about Jesus um, in the gospel reading. We, of course, hold the gospel reading as unique and special. We all stand for it, and the gospel is processed into the center, and we all face that in that space. This is because we are believing that Christ is present in the proclamation of the word. Christ is present um, in the proclamation of that gospel and the reading of that, and we honor that by standing and by acknowledging that. So that's one of the things you'll see. Another thing I just wanted to make sure that you know about is we don't actually pick the readings that we do. Um, I don't know if you knew that, but we, we have what's called a lectionary, which is just a reading schedule that goes over three years. Um, and even the Episcopal Church didn't make this thing up. We actually, it's called a common lectionary. We share it with the Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church, with uh, the United Methodist Church, with the Presbyterian Church, with the American Baptists, uh, with the Lutherans, which is to say, if you stepped into many other denominational churches today, you would hear the same readings there that you're hearing here. If you went to St. Mary's or Knox or United Methodist after going to this service, you would hear the same readings there that you hear here. So that's one of the ways that we all strive to be united and connected with each other, is re regardless of what different denominational affiliation we have, we, we hear the same readings and meditate on them together. And so what you'll see in the next portion is those readings, and I'll invite you to look for common themes. Um, traditionally, not always, traditionally, the Old Testament reading or the Hebrew scriptures are read from someone in the congregation who comes up, like Nico's about to do, and then the New Testament reading is read by someone in fancy robes who's going to help out with communion later. That's, that's, that's just a thing we do. It's a custom. It's one of those things that hangs out um, that we don't really know why we do it, but it's why we do it. It's what we do. So. But in the, in the meantime, Nico? I feel pretty fancy. You look really fancy. You look great. You're doing great. The first reading is taken from the book of Exodus. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day, Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath, the Sabbath day, and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother, so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. 
you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or male or female slave, or ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The word of the Lord. A reading from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided, through the foolishness of our proclamation, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks desire wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. 
the word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken, the gospel of our Lord. to accept the things that we cannot change, courage to change the things that we can, 
and the wisdom to know the difference in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. For those of you who joined us after the service began, you might be wondering why I'm stopping and talking during parts of the service. Um, we're doing what's called an instructed Eucharist, and throughout this service, we're going to take little moments and talk about what's happening in the service and why we do it to the degree that we understand that. We're going to use some of my sermon time for that as well. Um, so for those of you who always wish that I preached more briefly, today is your day. Okay? <laughs> Uh, it's going to be two minutes, so we're a two-minute sermon, and then we're going to get into some other things. Um, I want to talk specifically about Jesus' anger in the temple and what's going on in this space. We always get a little nervous when Jesus gets angry, right? We always get a little nervous because we're afraid of what it means for us. But it's so important for us to recognize that Jesus' anger almost always shows up for the same reason, which is he sees something keeping people from being able to experience relationship with God. When Jesus gets angry, it's because someone is getting in the way of someone else experiencing God's love. In the case of the temple, the people that are there who have the opportunity to, they provide uh, oxen and livestock and things like that, they're there for, to sacrifice those things. The people sacrifice those according to the commandments and that's part of how they atone and they, and they keep their relationship with God going in a specific way. And the people who are, doing their, who are there selling those things and exchanging money, it's clear that they're doing something most likely price gouging. They're preying on the people's need for confession and absolution. And they're benefiting and they're uh, profiting from that, from that. And instead of getting, helping people connect with God, they're actually getting in the way of people's connection with God. And friends, our goal as Christians always is to help people connect with the God who loves them. Our goal is to love and to help others to love and be loved. This time of Lent is a time for us to stop and take stock and ask the question, honestly, what do I do? What are the things that I do that keep me from experiencing God's love? And what are the things that I do, and this is even harder, that keep other people from experiencing their own belovedness? What things in our larger system are happening that we allow to happen in which we're complicit that keep people from experiencing the love of God? And what can we do about that? And this is the root of Christ's anger. It's also the core of his love for us is his belief that we are completely and utterly connected to God and he wants nothing to get in the way of that. End of sermon. Okay. What we're going to do right now at this time, I'm going to say some stuff later on about the rest of the service, but, but, but right now you have the opportunity to do a question and answer. My friend Tom has a microphone. You can raise your hand. Anything you want to know about the service and about worshiping in the Episcopal Church or about the Episcopal Church in general or about the readings we did today. Anything you'd like to know, you can just raise your hand and ask it. By the way, there's no such thing as a dumb question. Okay, And people who have been here their whole lives don't know a lot of these things. So don't feel like it'll make you look silly or new or, or dumb or whatever. Don't worry about that. Okay? Any questions about our service? Good. Sarah. Why is communion such a large part of the service? Oh, fantastic question. Um, we believe in the Episcopal Church that Christ is present in communion that Christ's body and blood are present and, and that we are nourished by Christ in that meal. And, and the reason that that's the center, therefore, the climax of the whole thing, is that we actually don't believe there's anything more important than that. Uh, union with God, connection with God. And in the communion meal, we believe that we are actually being nourished by God and God's love. That when the priest or the deacon says, or the, or the, or the uh, lay Eucharistic minister says, this is the body of Christ, the bread of heaven, this is the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation, that we're not kidding, that we really mean it. In fact, a couple years ago, one of my children was taking communion, and he walked up to take communion, and 
Joyce, who was giving him communion, said, this is the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. And he goes, is that really the body of Christ? <laughs> and she paused for a second, and then she went, yes. And he went, okay. <laughs> so I think, I think we, wanna, we, we recognize that all of our pretty words fail us. And they're beautiful, and we say things that hopefully help people, and we sing songs that hopefully help us, and pray prayers that are hopefully transformative to our hearts. But we believe that nothing is as transformative as experiencing God in our bodies and our lives. And so the communion ritual is a ritualization of our being nourished by God. And that's why that we place that at the center of all we do. Someone can preach a garbage sermon. Someone can do all sorts of, say all sorts of wrong things, and, and maybe we'll mess up on a song or we'll mess up on this or that. But when we take communion, none of that matters. Uh, because Christ is with us completely and totally, and nothing is getting in the way of it. And that's the goal. Kathy, up here in the front. Ah, hold on. Ask the question again with a microphone. Get ready. Why can only the priest distribute the bread? Oh, good question. Uh, technically, it doesn't have to be a priest that distributes the bread, but that is the custom of it. So uh, if, if sometimes if we need more than one person distributing bread, um, we can have someone who isn't. The custom generally is um, the bishop would be the, would be the one who does it. In the place of the bishop, the priests all act as sort of like in the bishop's stead. Like we're all here as priests because the bishop can't be in every place all the time. And so the custom is that the person who celebrates the Eucharist hands out the bread. That's the general idea, is that they're the ones who oversee that meal and then hand it out. But if you ever see a service where for some reason someone who's not a priest is handing out bread, it turns out that's totally okay and it doesn't make it any less real, right? Brian. How long has the current order and structure of the service been intact? Oh, great. Um, uh, gosh, um, it's basically been developed over the last um, like 17 or 1800 years. So, so there's pieces of it that have been in existence since the first century. And in fact, placing emphasis on communion has been going on since the first generation of Christians. Um, and it was natural to have some sort of readings. What happened over time that was shaped was, as I said, there's the service after it became, after Christianity became legal in the Roman Empire, a lot of the service started to take the shape of a Roman liturgy. Um, not Roman meaning Roman Catholic, Roman meaning like, like a Roman pagan service in some ways. Um, but the goal, as I said, uh, was to create that shape that, that sort of guides us towards the proclamation of the gospel and then guides us into that meal. It's been going on in that sort of basic shape for about 1,700 years overall, yeah. Asher. What's the uh, history and the easiest way to describe the difference between right one and right two? Oh, fantastic. Uh, well, many of you, the people will tell you here that right one is real worship and right two is slumming it. Um, uh, uh, so, 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 so this is a really interesting thing. We use a bulletin, but all the things that are in the bulletin come from our Book of Common Prayer. And whereas a lot of different traditions, a lot of different traditions have uh, sort of catechisms that are sort of definitive for the church. Uh, we know the Roman Catholic Church does. I grew up Lutheran, Missouri Senate. We had to memorize that small Luther small catechism. Um, the, the Calvin's Institutes for some of the Calvinist churches. The Anglican tradition, by and large, the way we experience what we believe is through our Book of Common Prayer, which means our liturgies, def our worship defines what we believe. It's a really unique sort of way of doing it. So I say all that to say, the way we worship means a lot to people. And when we change worship, it can be really uncomfortable for folks, right? It can be very uncomfortable. There are people in here that if they, in this space now, that if they came to the banquet service, would be like, I mean, I guess technically it's not devil worship, but I don't know what's happening right now, right? 
Like that's, we just got to know that, that we all, it's very personal. Um, the prayer book, um, there was a change, uh, the, there was a prayer book in 1928 that was used from 1928 up until 1979, also the year I was born, two wonderful things that happened to Christianity in 1979. Um, um, but, in but that's a really long time from 28 to 79. And then the 1979 prayer book actually made the most radical changes to the liturgy that had been seen in hundreds of years. And there was a lot of rebellion against it. This church actually, by the way, was a test site for the new liturgies. In the mid-70s, they were doing, trying that out. But so that, so that older service with the more Elizabethan language, thou and thy and things like that, and some of the older, uh, more atonement-focused theology, um, they had to keep it, essentially, to keep the church together. We can't just say, we're all going to do this other liturgy now. We had to say, we're going to have this liturgy available, this newer, updated liturgy, but we're also going to make it possible for you to worship the way you always have since you've been growing up. We still do that at this church, by the way. Eight o'clock is a right one service. So they're really similar in structure, and some of the words are the same, but the main idea is that we've focused, we've shifted focus a little bit um, into right two with more modern language and some more um, developed ways of talking about God's presence. Um, um, in the right one, a lot of it is just focused on basically Christ was born to die, which is great and is part of it, but there's a lot more going on in Christ's life and teaching, and our, we try to have our liturgy um, reflect Christ's incarnation as really an important part. The embodiment of God um, in Jesus is really important, so we'll see that shift. Um, there probably will not be another radical revision of, of, of a prayer book in, in anybody here's lifetime. There may be some additions or amendments, but I doubt that there will be anything as radical as what happened in 1979. Thank you for that question. So, Nico. thank you. Um, what, what is the relationship between the Episcopal Church and the Church of England? Um, yeah. And how is that allegiance? Is this like uh, the Anglican of the free, or is it Good kind question. of like because America became independent of England? That's good, right? That's good question. That was, I mean, that's actually a really good thing that you just said. Uh, uh, our relationship to the Church of England is similar to America's relationship to England. Because um, what happened was the Church of England, of course, had uh, Anglican churches in the colonies. And when the colonies uh, declared their independence, they couldn't actually follow along with continuing to be part of the Church of England. The Church of England's governance is that the supreme governor of the church is the crown. So that's problematic for a new American country, right? So they created, essentially... Um, a new denomination they called the Episcopal Church. Episcopal just means a church with bishops. The word episkopos in Greek means bishops, so it just means church with bishops. But essentially, it was meant to be in almost as many ways as possible like the Church of England, but we have our own governance, which actually, because it was created around the same time the American government was created, it has all the same kinds of fun bureaucracy, um, but checks and balances and things like that, governmentally, you'll see the difference. But we have a very strong relationship with our Anglican siblings across the globe. Um, and that, it, that it extends to the point where if someone from the Church of England were to come to the States, they could become a priest in the Episcopal Church. And I, I have several friends who are Episcopal priests who, who serve in Wales and Scotland and England. So we do have a close connections with, the, with our, our people. It's both distinct and also very connected, right? I have time for two more. Anne? Here we go. We're going to get you a microphone. Could you talk a little bit about kneeling versus standing? Yes. <laughs> um, kneeling is a sign of penitence and humility, and it's very much a big part of some people's experience of piety, their faith practice. 
You'll see some people would do it during confession. Some people do it during the Eucharistic prayer at certain points. It is a symbol of humility before God. Um, it's not required of anybody, especially if you've got bad knees. If we say, please kneel, and you're in tremendous pain, just sit down. It's okay. God's got you. But the idea of kneeling is a, is a sign of penitence and humility. But there are also is the posture of standing during prayer, and that is a sign that we are empowered by God to stand before God. Through Christ, we're empowered to stand before God and ask for what we want. And so standing before God in prayer, whether it be Eucharistic or otherwise, is a completely acceptable way too. This church is kind of split. You'll see some people stand and some people kneel. I've thought a lot about trying to sort of convince you all to do one thing or the other, but I don't really think that's who we are. I think the reality is we're a church that allows people to figure out within us what works best for us. Um, I'm a big kneeling guy, but for me, just for me, because um, I, I don't ever do it, so when it happens, I, it slows me down and makes me think differently, but I don't have a good, like, I'm not like it makes me a better Christian or anything, because we know that's not true. Um, and also, I don't get to kneel much, because I'm up here, so you won't see that happen very often. But kneeling's great, standing's great, both are totally acceptable. Okay, I think we have uh, Avery over here. Um, what's the role of the, like, during the gospel, what's the role of the person who carries out the cross? Like, I've seen multiple yes. different people do it, and I've just always wondered. Yeah. So the cross, she asked about the, what's that? Let's repeat the question. So, so she asked the question of the role of the person carrying the cross in the procession, in the gospel procession. The cross is meant to represent Christ's presence among us being brought into this space. And, and there's a, it's a formal, it's a ritualistic acknowledgement of Christ's presence. And so the reason the cross takes the gospel book out there is, as I said before, we're all standing and facing that space where we believe that in the proclamation of that gospel, Christ is present in a unique way. And so the cross bearer is, is sort of ritually leading us to recognize Christ's presence in that space. And that's the idea. And if you ever want to be a cross bearer, you let me know. We can make that happen. Okay? It's a phenomenal job. Okay. Um, now, I'm going to stop there. I know there's plenty more questions. You all did very good work. I'm going to tell you a couple things that are coming up really quickly, okay? The next thing that we're all going to do is we're going to say the creed together, the Nicene Creed. This is placed right after the sermon, so if the preacher says a bunch of heresies, we can all get corrected immediately following that, okay? The Nicene, the Nicene Creed is one of the most ancient creeds in the history of the church, and it is a, it is a creed that tells us about who who we see the Trinity to be. That's the basic gist of it, is it's pointing to who God is in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It was uh, cobbled together and finally, finally sort of brought to its present form in the fourth century, um, and the goal uh, was to make sure that we were clear on Christ's identity, who Christ is. And by the way, we all stand up and we say, we believe, okay? Because let's be honest, some of y'all out here aren't sure what you believe in each line, right? I'm a company man, I believe the whole thing, but... You all, you all are all over the map, and that's beautiful, right? So we don't say, I believe, because sometimes you're like, I don't know how I feel about that. But we believe as a corporation, as a corporate body, as a people, as, as Christ's body, we believe this thing. And wherever you are within that belief personally, we as a body believe this. And sometimes you can believe all of it, and sometimes you can, and we'll believe it for you. But that's what we're doing. We'll go from there to the prayers of the people, where we lift up our petitions for the week. Um, those things that we're thankful for and those things that we're um, worried about, intercessions we call them, and thanksgivings, and then uh, we'll pass the peace. And um, passing the peace is an ancient, it's been, that's been going on since first century, uh, passing the peace. It, for those of you who are uncomfortable with shaking people's hands and saying, uh, peace be with you, and looking at them and talking to them, just know that in the first century, they did it with a kiss, so it could be a lot worse. 
okay? Give you all hours for you. I'm going to stop there. We're going to go through the service, through the piece, and then I'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more. Um, let's, where's our, uh, please stand. Please stand. And we'll say the creed together. We believe in one, one God. God. God of hope, help us who struggle in our daily life and work. When we lose our purpose, when we bow to hatred, when we take offense at others, when we compromise our values, when we cherish regrets, when we surrender to sorrow, as we accept your love ever new and offer our prayers unto you, we pray and give thanks for our Bishop Kristen, for Olivia Bowers, Linda Callard, the Reverend Richard Eberfeld, Lee Gorman, Kathleen Jinks, Nicole Ivey, Ryan Patel, Ted Russell, and Presiding Bishop Michael Curry. For the victims of the mass shootings in our country throughout this past week in Point Hope, Alaska, Chicago, Illinois, Louisville, Kentucky, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Orlando, Florida, and Independence, Missouri. For the victims of the wars in Uganda, Ukraine, Sudan, Israel, Palestine, and for the unrest throughout the Middle East. Hold us and all people in your loving care. May we hope. God of hope. 
From you comes every blessing and all peace. Show us that in the midst of our struggles, you are with us. And give us the abundance of your grace that we may do the work you have given us to do. And that we may be for the world a sign of your presence. Through Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. Amen. And may the peace of the Lord be always with you. Okay, my friends, please be seated. We're going to move into the second part of our service, which is called, the, uh, as I said, the Liturgy of the Holy Communion or Liturgy of the Table. Um, just um, a couple things I want. Well, no, I'm just going to let you know about that. We're switching over to that. So we're going to move forward into, we're going to hear an offertory. You're going to have the opportunity. You're going to see what we call the offertory is both the offering of the gifts of bread and wine to the table and also the financial offerings that people make that get brought up. People do that here either in the dish or digitally. It's also a time for you to offer up your heart. It's a space to prepare yourself for receiving communion. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. You'll notice, though, the song is going to guide us towards this celebration of Eucharist. And then what you're going to see is the celebrant's going to come up and she's going to stand right here and she's going to uh, pray this prayer for us on behalf of us. Um, so that first part of the liturgy that we're used to doing, the Lord be with you and also with you. Lift up your hearts, we lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. This is actually the people giving the, the celebrant permission to pray on behalf of all of them, all of you. And in this place, she's going to pray a prayer that focuses on the salvation narrative of Christ coming to save us. We're going to see the institution of the first uh, communion, or what we call the Last Supper, of course. And, um, and then we're going to, this, she will bless uh, this and sanctify this bread and wine, asking the Holy Spirit to enter into it. You'll hear all of those pieces, and then invite all of us to share in the memory of that by how we're nourished in this meal. So that's what we're about to see happen. Um, so just, I guess, pay attention. And I'll invite the celebrant to say the next line. And now walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and a good and joyful thing, always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. You bid your faithful people cleanse their hearts and prepare with joy for the Paschal feast, that fervent in prayer and in works of mercy, and renewed by your word and sacraments, they may come to the fullness of joy which you have prepared for those who love you. Therefore, we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. Gracious Father, in your infinite love you made us for yourself, and when we had fallen into sin and become subject to evil and death, you in your mercy sent Jesus Christ, your only and eternal Son, to share our human nature, to live and die as one of us, to reconcile us to you, the God and Father of all. He stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself in obedience to your will, a perfect sacrifice for the whole world. On the night he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. And when he had given thanks to you, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup of wine and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. We celebrate the memorial of our redemption, O Father, in this sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Recalling his death, resurrection, and ascension, we offer you these gifts. Sanctify them by your Holy Spirit to be for your people the body and blood of your Son, the holy food and drink of new and unending life in him. Sanctify us also that we may faithfully receive this holy sacrament and serve you in unity, constancy, and peace. And at the last day, bring us with all your saints into the joy of your eternal kingdom. All this we ask through your Son, Jesus Christ, by him and with him and in him. In the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. Amen. And now, as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to say, Our Father, 
who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. The gifts of God for the people of God. Okay, well, who's going to stop? Go for it. Take them in remembrance that Christ died for you, and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. I invite you all to be seated, and this is the last time that I'll interrupt. So, you know, I don't know if you knew this, but many churches have altar calls in them, you know, where they call you to the altar at the end, during the service. Uh, we do, too. We have an altar call every week. It's called communion. Uh, you're going to come up here, and you'll kneel or stand. And you'll put your empty hands out, and you'll ask for Jesus, and you'll get Jesus. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's what we do here. This is the centerpiece of our worship together. It is an opportunity for us to be nourished by God. And from here on out, everything you'll see is oriented towards us being taking this nourishment and from being fed, being sent out into the world. The post-communion prayer, uh, it, the commissioning of Eucharistic ministers, um, the blessing, the dismissal, all of it is about us having been gathered together, having been transformed by the meal we share and the proclamation and embodiment of the word of God in Jesus Christ, and then sent out into the world to do the work, sent into the world rooted and grounded in love to serve all people with humility, compassion, and faithfulness. That is the work of this last part of the service that we'll all do. The ushers will excuse you when it's time to come up.
Christine. In the name of God and on behalf of this congregation, I send you forth bearing these holy gifts that those to whom you go may share with us in the communion of Christ's body and blood. We who are money are one body because we shall share one bread, one cup. Bow your head before the Lord. Look mercifully on this, your family, almighty God, that by your great goodness they may be governed and preserved evermore. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. I kind of forgot the folks' million prayer, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> it's important for us to screw up. Yeah, I know, but we no, do. it is, because then grace abounds evermore, and they can realize that it will never be perfect, but God is. That's, a, that's before the peace, not now. You're doing now. great work. No, you can screw up. You can screw up right after communion. It's and also, good. you can only screw up once, and I uh -oh, did it twice, you're in but okay. <laughs> Go for it, sister. Let us pray. Almighty and ever-living God, we thank you for feeding us with the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and for assuring us in these holy mysteries that we are living members of the body of your Son and heirs of your eternal kingdom. And now, Father, send us out to do the work you have given us to do, to love and serve you as faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord, to him, to you, and to the Holy Spirit, be honor and glory, now and forever. Amen. Now the closing hymn. <laughs>
Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. 